We're starting a series entitled, In Times Like These, as we see the, the nation and its leaders relegate God out of society, out of schools over the years. We come to these times, and as believers, we ask, what's my part? What am I supposed to do? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul wrote to Timothy, Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And so I know you've been praying for me, and uh, I pray that you will continue praying for me as we go through this series, because it's so important that we as believers know what's my place in these perilous times. Now, one thing you need to understand, we look at this as Americans, we think, ooh, these are getting to be dangerous times. But this is really what the church has faced and what believers have faced throughout history and still face around the world today. Persecution and death for standing for the Lord. So this is not unusual. Paul wrote Timothy also, and he said, Timothy, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's part of the deal. But he also told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. So we need to look at Scripture today, the opportunity to be faithful today, and say, Lord, here am I. We're going to follow you. We're going to be found faithful today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, our prayer is to be found faithful. Faithful. In our time, in our place, that we might hear from you, Lord Jesus. Well done, faithful servant. You were faithful. Lord, I pray today that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher. And that every one of us, myself included, might be spirit-filled listeners. That we might not be just hearers of the word, as James said, but obedient to the word. Stir us up to that obedience, to courage. That you will be proud to call us your people, Lord. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that did not know you as their own personal Savior, that they would flee the wrath to come. And find refuge in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are only two nations from their very beginning that have been dedicated to God by their leaders. That is the nation of Israel and the United States of America. Over 200 years ago, George Washington held in his hand the first ever presidential address. In that address was a prophetic warning. It was this, 
The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself hath ordained. In other words, if America should ever turn away from God and his ways, if it should ever disregard his eternal rules of order and right, then his blessings, the smiles of heaven, would be removed from the land. Jonathan Kahn goes on to say it was an ancient warning. It had been given in Hebrew words by the prophets of the kingdom of Israel, but Israel turned away from God and disregarded his eternal rules of order and right. They drove God out of their government, out of their public squares, out of their culture, and out of the lives of their children. They worshipped idols and served other gods. They celebrated immorality and persecuted the righteous. They lifted up their children on the altars of foreign gods, and the blessings of God were removed from them and the land and replaced with judgment. It is two and a half thousand years later, and America has made the same mistake. We too have turned away from God. We too have driven him out of our government, out of our public squares, out of our culture, and out of the lives of our children. We too have profaned the sacred and sanctified the profane. We too have killed our most innocent, over 55 million of our unborn children, and our collective hands are covered with blood. What we were warned never to do by our first president we have now done. You know, it's easy for uh, for us to be critical of other nations like Hitler's Germany, of Stalin's Russia, of the cruel killings we hear go on in Muslim countries. But nobody holds a candle to the blood that's on the hands of the United States of America. Nobody. And we as Americans, being a part of it, for the first time in this last couple of months, I really begin to understand a little bit why Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. See, Isaiah warned of the coming judgment And Jeremiah presided over the destruction and the taking apart of his nation because his people would not listen. They wouldn't listen. In Isaiah chapter 1, we have the courtroom of God. And while this instruction was in particular to those people that were living there in Isaiah's day, there's application here for the United States of America because we also were a nation that was dedicated to God. More missionary work has gone on in the past from this nation than any other nation. We are of all nations most blessed and therefore of all nations most accountable for the wickedness that we are a part of today, that we condone. And our nation is beginning to crumble. And we think if we just had some better leaders, if we just had some better politicians that could make some better decisions about economics and some better deals with the countries, well, then we would have more peace and we would have more prosperity. And that would be the answer. And the Bible gives us instruction as Christians in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we are to pray for our leaders. I hope you're doing that. And we know from the Old Testament that God is able to even turn the heart of wicked kings. He's not intimidated by our leaders. But only he can bring revival. But the promise to godly people and his people, not the worldly people, not the wicked people, 
his people that are called by his name, if they will humble themselves, if we will allow the Holy Spirit to search our lives to see if there be some wicked thing in our lives that we've just kind of covered up, that we've just kind of said, oh, that's, that's okay, Lord, I don't have any big sins. You see, revival begins with the house of God. We can complain about the world and we complain about the evil, but we also, as American people, have enjoyed the spoils and we see what happened to Israel. They came out of the wilderness and Moses warned them and Joshua warned them when they get into the houses they didn't build and begin to eat the vineyards that they didn't plant then their heart would forget. And you look at the book of Judges, and Joshua said, now listen, if it's evil for you to serve this God that delivered you from, from Egypt and brought you through the wilderness miraculously and provided for you, choose you this day whom you will serve. But Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In times like these, there are decisions to be made. And for a believer is to come under the authority of God's word and be found obedient no matter what the cost. Israel didn't do that. And you look at the book of Judges, and what would happen is they'd go into idolatry and immorality. And it would start with just this idea of pluralism. You see, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were henotheists. What that meant is they believed in their God, they had a God for Israel, but there was other gods too, and so they were very superstitious. It wasn't until God allowed them to go into captivity to Nebuchadnezzar, they finally came out on the other side, believing what Moses had told them in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Up to that point, he was just one among many, just happened to be theirs. They were henotheists. And as American Christians, we have many times bought into that same thing. And we say, oh, well, they have their religion, I have mine. And you know, the political correctness is don't talk about religion or politics. Be polite. Be nice. And as our former assistant pastor, John Hutchison, used to remind us often, nice is not a gift of the Spirit. We're to be kind. We're to be gentle. We are to speak the truth in love. But in the name of niceness... We are not salt and light anymore as believers, and we can't blame the world for that. You see, just like in the time of Judges, as God would bless them, and they begin to eat his blessing in their, in their crops and live in those houses and be able to see the strength of their military grow, and then they would forget the Lord, and they would go into immorality, and they begin to worship the other gods and put up with them. Pretty soon, the other gods were right in their midst, and what happened then? God would send a wicked, evil nation to come down and take them captive. And they would be slaves for a while. Then they would cry out to God, and God would deliver them. And they'd say, oh, it's just so great to be free again. And pretty soon, they were back in the cycle of wickedness and slavery. So they said at the end of Judges, what we need is we need a king. If we just had a king, oh, they would be good if we had a king. Certainly a king would command us to be righteous and stay in the way. What king is there in Israel in all the kings that was a righteous king? We call David a man after God's own heart. A man that murdered one of his own mighty men so that he might have his wife for his wife. 
A man who, instead of trusting the Lord, multiplied wives. Why did they multiply wives? Well, I guess one, because they liked women. But it was, there's a practical reason also, and that was because they would make deals, and they would marry a king's daughter, and then they'd have peace. And so that was a way, instead of trusting the Lord to provide peace and security, they would just go make peace their way. And God said, don't multiply horses and chariots, and they did anyway. And then Solomon followed. And young man Solomon took over from his father David. He was the product of that adulterous relationship after Uriah the Hittite died and then his Solomon's older brother died then he was married to Bathsheba and Solomon was produced and God chose of all that he chose by his grace Solomon to be the king and as a young man Solomon prayed for wisdom not wealth and God gave him wisdom and when they dedicated the temple that Solomon was finally able to build the glory of God entered the temple. Can you imagine going to a place where the glory of God was visibly present? And yet Solomon, Solomon forgot God. He did the same thing his father did as he began to get wealthier and wealthier and he added wives and concubines, a thousand of them. It said in his old age, his wives turned his heart away from God and began to bring the idols in, even the god Moloch. Molech. God Molech was a particularly wicked, wicked worship. They would take their own children and then bathe them in oil. And the, the idol was made of brass and had this large movable jaw. And the inside of the the idol was fire, and they would place the baby on that jaw, and it would roll into the fire. Even the righteous, supposedly righteous kings of Israel. When I think of Israel, you think of God's chosen people. Not one. It seems like not one. Now, there were good kings, and there were really wicked kings. And they were, they were saying the same things in those days that we're trying to determine today. It's not about the image of God and man when it comes to abortion. It's about does the baby feel pain and what time does the baby feel pain? You know what they said in those days? Because the fire was so much harder when the babies were bathed in the oil, their skin would draw back and so when they find the corpse later, the, the, the skin would be shriveled up into a smile and they said, see, the baby likes it. It feels good. How wicked. And yet we're trying to determine today at what point can they feel pain? And then it's okay before that to abort them. Innocent lives. Fifty-five million innocent children. And as Charlie was teaching us in the Sunday night service, there's a man named Singer who's in charge of bioethics at Princeton University. And he's advocating to our government. Isn't that funny? He's in charge of ethics. He's advocating that, that parents be allowed to kill their children up to 28 days old outside the womb. I want to tell you something, folks. As we consider where our nation has gone, I want you to think about this. The increase of homosexuality, all of these, these uh, children that have been innocent children that have been murdered, 
And you know it's more black children than any others. You know why? Because when they first started these experiments, they always put the abortion clinics in the black neighborhoods. See, that's social engineering. It's genocide. And yet we didn't cry out. But I want to tell you today, folks, that's not what God is going to punish our nation for. That's God's punishment on our nation. You see, when you read Romans chapter 1, as the nation begins to fall apart, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We kill our own babies. But what's precious today? Nature. You got to protect nature. You got to take care of animals. And this same fellow said that Dogs have more value than human infants. That's where we live. Oh, it's just all done in a sterile environment. You don't have to see it or hear about it. But we are a wicked people. And blood is on our hands. And I think I begin to understand a little bit more, just a little bit more, why Nehemiah could be called a weeping prophet as he wept over his nation. Folks, the Bible says the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's time to pray. It is time to pray. It is time to be salt and light. Romans one twenty five says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That happens in Christian circles. In our Christian culture today, we've exchanged God for who he is and made him somebody we can be comfortable with. It's called idolatry. You know the two most accepted forms of idolatry in Christian circles today? Success in business and athletics. Yeah, athletics. I hear from people all the time, parents, especially in Laramie. Well, we don't have good enough sports programs here, so we need to travel all the time. We need to go Fort Collins, Colorado, because there's more competition. And our kids, they just just really need to be good in athletics. What did Paul say? Bodily exercise profiteth a little, that's all. Godliness is profitable to all things. And yet we bow at the shrine of idolatry and athletics because, oh, it's so important that our kids get every chance to be really good in athletics. And if only, if only our boy could go pro, our daughter could go pro, oh, man, then our parenting would be affirmed. And we care nothing of their soul as we tell them it's more important, athletics are more important than the worship of God, it's more important than you getting to youth group, you've got to get to practice, you've got to strive, you've got to do well. And we say, well, I want to go to church, but I'm so busy. And I always tell people when they tell me that, I'm a pastor, people are always trying to get me to do this to them. I don't do that, it's not my job. 
And they give me this scenario and say, well, I really want to go to church. No, you don't. You have the same 24 hours that everybody else does, and you do what you really want to in that time, and what you do demonstrates what you worship every day, every week. So when those poor children go up, and then nothing of the peace of God, and their life is being torn apart, and sports isn't helping anymore, it's time to repent. The other is success in business. And what happened to the children of Israel was all about their money. God gave them this wonderful, wonderful system. He said, what I want you to do is, I'm going to give you a king, but I'm still the king. God's the king. I'm going to be the provider, the protector. I'm going to be your leader. And then I'll give you somebody that can be my under-shepherd and the king. And so he gave them a king like all the other kings, and they got Saul. What What was the process? The process was to take care of one another. That was their government. To say right what's right and wrong or give them peace in their land. And then every seven years to give everybody a sabbatical, not just the professors in the university. Wouldn't that be cool? How many would like a sabbatical? Every seven years, you just take a break and, and you, just, you just feast to the Lord and you just love your neighbors and God said, I'll take care of you that seventh year. That'd be a wonderful program. You think about Some people think about the Old Testament, oh, it's just really hard. It wouldn't have been had they been willing to be obedient every seven years. And then he he tied them the the land to himself, and he said, the land is mine. It's God's. But I'm going to give you a stewardship of it. And so every tribe and every family had a little piece of land. Now, if you were a really good businessman, you didn't have to borrow. God just provided for you. But some, some people are better business than others, and some would run into financial trouble. And so they could sell their land, basically rent their land, until it would be worth as much as years left till the year of Jubilee. Because every 50 years, all the land would go back to its original owners debt-free. All the slaves were free, and everybody got their land back every 50 years. Man, that's an awesome system. And when they were harvesting, God said, don't harvest the corners of the field. Because that's for the poor people and for the animals that live in the field. And if you're harvesting every year and you're throwing the sheaves of wheat or whatever you're harvesting on the wagon, one falls off. He said, you just say that was God that knocked it off. That's for the poor. Don't pick it up again. That's for the poor. And every third year they had another tithe for the poor. They wanted to take care of their own. It's a beautiful, beautiful system. And then every seven years when you didn't work... You didn't reap either. You left it in the field. That was for the poor people. It was to let the land rest and whatever came up by itself, that was for poor people. But you know what? They had a better idea than God. They said, no, 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 no. We can bless ourselves better than God can bless us. And you come to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and he said, you are a wicked nation. You don't know me as your master. And he invites them in the last chapter. Prove me now herewith. Find out if I'm a good God or not. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. I was talking to a businessman some time ago. He's no longer in our church. He was looking at a product they'd produced, and it was really going to be just gangbusters, just gangbusters. And he said, you know, we're talking, 
and we're thinking we're going to have to set up our own little fund. You know, it's just gonna, God's going to bless so much. And, you know, we just want to make sure that we do well with that. So we're going to step our own fund to be able to distribute the money that, that God's given us. I said, that's wicked. God's already done that. It's called the church. But see, what people want is they want to be able to have that string out there. They say, oh, this comes from our fund. Aren't we good? And you know what you're doing? He was preparing to steal the glory from God. God said, just bring the tithe in. What does it show? The same thing that the laws in the Old Testament show were shown about the land and the sabbaticals and the jubilee and the tithe was, we belong to God. And not given a special gift when I bring my tithe in, the first tenth of everything. I, don't, don't question yourselves on what the tithe is. It's 10%. That's what it is. And you bring it in, you say, God, I belong to you. Everything I have belongs to you. You're concerned about the 90%. I want to spend that right too. But this 10%, I just want to give it. Now, we live in a wonderful nation. And you know, this year we had, to, Christy and I were looking through and said, we owe this much. And I said, you know what? I don't mind paying the taxes to my country. My country has been good to me. It's been a wonderful thing. I don't, I don't begrudge the taxes I pay. I mean, sometimes I wish they would do a better job once they got them, but I don't mind paying taxes. And you know what? God's, God's a good God. I mean, he could get taxes out of the mouth of a fish. So I'm not worried about that. But God is looking at the heart that says, no, no, I can do better. And that's what Israel did. And through the judge, time of the judges and through all the kings, they're always in this cycle of obedience and disobedience, of discipline and then blessing and then idolatry and then discipline again. Well, that's where we start in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is the southern kingdom, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, Uzziah was a good king. And we see in chapter 6, Isaiah's call to ministry at Uzziah's funeral. He said, in the year that Uzziah died, and I'm sure Isaiah's thinking, oh, Lord, what are we going to do now? Isaiah, Uzziah was a righteous king. And as he was righteous and he did good things to the land, what happened to Uzziah? He was puffed up with pride. He began to think, well, rules are forever the people. The law is forever the people. I'm the king. And look how God has been so good to me, and, and he just took it upon himself. He said, I'll just, I'll just go into the Holy of Holies. God's so pleased with me. I'll just go into the Holy of Holies myself and present some incense. And the priests, who had been encouraged by his righteousness, confronted him in there and said, what are you doing in here? This is not for you to be in here. And you know, I believe at that time, if Uzziah would have said, oh, Lord, forgive me. My pride is killing me. He would have been forgiven, but you know he didn't do that. He was the king. What time? What? What? Those puny little priests confront me. I'm the king. I'm the one that answers to God, and I have been given all this blessing. And he got rebellious, and he threatened them. And he didn't hardly get the words out of his mouth, and God struck him right there with leprosy. And he died a leper. And his son came, and his son did okay, but then his grandson rose to the throne. He was wicked. He began to bring the idols of the northern kingdom back in. They even set up idols in the temple to worship, false idols in the temple. Why? Well, you know, 
we don't want to say there's only one God. You know, everybody kind of has their thing. And so they just allowed it to come in, just like the United States. Now our president says we're not a Christian nation. What are we then? I guess we're pagan. See, we rejected God. And so I guess we can just make better decisions on our own. That's the exact same thing that the Israelites thought. And then Hezekiah comes along. And Hezekiah, I'm telling you, he was a righteous king. He even tore, see, they'd have these, they cleanse the temple, but then they would still leave their place of worship and immorality, the groves and the trees. They'd go have, have all kinds of immorality in these groves and trees. And he said, no, we're cutting them all down. He even went into Israel and cut them down. And he served the Lord. And so those kind of kings, even though the kings, some of them were good, some were wicked, the people were following the wicked. And so there's a warning that comes, and I think the warning is applicable to the United States. Because we were a nation that's dedicated to God. The only difference we're going to see in the last ten verses is God has promised, he's made a covenant to Israel one day in the tribulation. Now the tribulation, that last seven years, that's all about God getting his years back. Remember, there were seven weeks of seven years, it says in Daniel, where God's going to take all of those years of jubilee and all those every seven years sabbatical back. And so you have all those years between the last, when when, uh, Daniel, when the people go back to the land and then to when Jesus rides into the gate and offers himself as king. And then there's seven years left. In that last three and a half years of the last sabbatical year, Israel's going to be saved. As a nation, they're going to recognize they missed the Messiah. And you want to see their heart cry? It's found in Isaiah 53. It was prophesied that one day they're going to say, oh, we missed him. We, we despised him. We thought he was a man despised and acquainted with grief, and we turned our faces from him. But he was our king. And they're going to turn, and they're going to come to him. And Jesus is going to come and sit on the throne of David, but there's no such promise to the United States of America. So he calls heaven to witness as God calls them into the throne room of God of the universe. And he says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, J. Vernon McGee, I love him. I don't know if you've ever heard him on the radio, but God gave him a voice for the radio. He's got that southern drawl and that deep, crackly voice. And he tells a story in his commentary through the Bible about a little boy who was raised in a Christian home, godly home, and he was invited next door to go to the neighbor's house, to his best friend's, to his buddy's house for dinner. And they sat down, little boy, he was just used to, we thank the Lord for our food. I hope you're not ashamed to thank the Lord for your food, no matter where you're at. And he bowed his head to pray, and they just took off eating. And he was a little embarrassed, and he was a little guy, maybe 10 years old, and he didn't know what to do, and he just kind of blurted out what was on his heart. He said, oh, well, y'all are just like my dog. You don't thank the Lord. You just go into eating. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. That was Israel. They, they didn't recognize the Lord for all he'd done. They didn't see those Sabbath years and the tithe as an opportunity to glorify the Lord and just a joy to say, Lord, I trust you with everything, but here's just a token. They said, no, we better can bless ourselves and what's God got to do with it anyway? And he said, God established this nation. He created this people, and they don't even know who's taking care of them. A donkey knows more than the children of Israel do. And that is the United States of America today also. We say, no, we, we can't pray in Jesus' name. We have this big, powerful moment of silence. Thought how ridiculous this is? Well, we don't want to say anything offensive to the ungodly, wicked people here. So we'll just have a moment of silence. What in the world is that going to do? A moment of silence. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. That's where we're at, folks. You may not have, but our culture has, our nation has, our government has regulated it out. It is no longer politically correct to call sin, sin, and soon it will be a crime. Unless there is revival. And then he does the same thing that Jesus does. In Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. He looks at the church of Laodicea who thought, oh, we're doing well. I mean, economy's great in our church. We are rich and increased with, 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 with wealth and we don't have need of anything. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 no. You're poor and you're blind and you're naked spiritually. Isaiah is seeing what's coming. And he does, God does his evaluation through his prophet. And he says, where will you be stricken again? In other words, there's no place else for you to get hit on your body. As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence, it is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Great Britain. The country that God used to launch the modern missionary movement now allows Sharia law to rule. They just can't say no. And guess what? Now in the United States, states like Texas are having to make rules. There's no law above the Constitution of the United States. And guess what? All the Muslim people who have taken over are saying, oh, that's just terrible. We shouldn't do that. Oh, have Sharia law. And we say, oh, we need to be politically correct. We can't say anything's wrong. That's the same thing that happened to Israel. They just couldn't say anything was sin. They couldn't say anything was right or wrong anymore because everything's right. Everything's okay. And people are devouring the inheritance of God. He says it's about gone. It's about to happen. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation, is overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. All that's left of the fields is a little, little rickety hut out there. He said, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city, 
And he says this, unless, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? In Genesis chapter 18, God saw the wickedness of Sodom, that it was great. And he said, I can't let it go on anymore. I'm going to destroy it. Why did he destroy it? It wasn't because they were bad hosts. That's what some people have said. Oh, it wasn't the wicked immorality and the homosexuality that was rampant and their culture was dying. No, no, it wasn't that. They were bad hosts. No, the Bible said their wickedness was gone up to heaven. And so he destroyed it. And he was having that talk with Abraham because I think it was a Christophany God in, in uh, human form before he came to earth. He says, shall we share with Abraham? He's our friend. Shall we share what we're going to do? And they share it. And Abraham say, oh, surely, God, you're a righteous God. And you're long-suffering. You're merciful. If there's 50 people, because he's thinking Lot went down there. He saw the watered plains of Sodom. And he said, oh, that's a good place to live. And he went down and lived outside of town, but pretty soon he was right in the middle of it. He was involved in the politics, and Abraham thought to himself, surely Lot has had influence as long as he's been there, over 50 people, 50 people. And then he thinks about it a little bit, and he says, but, but maybe if there's just a few more. And he gets down to where he says, well, Lord, if there's just 10, certainly that's just his, his children and their husbands. And God said to him, if it's only for 10, I will not destroy the city. And they left. And they went down as God said he would do, and he would see the wickedness firsthand. Listen, Romans 1 says, we're not going to be punished for this. This is what happens to a culture when it turns its back on God. It dies. It dies. And part of the death is the immorality and the violence that abounds. Violence everywhere. And God destroyed it. And you know, Mrs. Job was so taken. And Job was so taken with their love for the city, this wicked, wicked place. The Bible says daily, his righteous soul was vexed. He just learned how to live with wickedness. And the angels had to take them and grab them by the hand and drag them out of town. And they said, don't look back. But Joe's wife, she just couldn't stand it. She loved Sodom and Gomorrah. Even with all its wickedness, she looked back at God, turned to her a pillar of salt. Babylon that will be destroyed in the last days in Revelation 17 and 18 is religious Babylon and economic Babylon. And when economic Babylon is destroyed... The merchants of the earth, they cry as they see the smoke of her, of her destruction going up. They say, alas, alas, Babylon. All the business that was lost. All the luxuries that we enjoyed. Oh, it's just so sad. In verses 10 through 20, we see... The instruction, the remedy. Verses 10 through 15, he says, stop your false worship. They were just going through the motions. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs of goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Said you're wasting your time. Same thing he said in Malachi. I wish that someone would shut the doors. In America today, it is just common. I've learned, I didn't think I was naive. I was in the army and saw the wickedness that was there, American culture, but, but I guess I'm just naive. I've had to learn to ask Christian couples when they come for marriage, are you living together? Well, yeah. Who doesn't? Wickedness has infiltrated the church because the church doesn't preach righteousness anymore. It's so logical. I mean, why wouldn't you live together? Let's find out if it's going to work. Wicked, wicked, wicked. We're just like the world. And we expect a different result. And we come together and we have our great worship bands across America. And we have great conferences and all kinds of things. Oh, we're just wonderful. And success is graded by how many people come and sit in the seats. And yet I think the Church of America is full of tares. People say, well, I said a prayer. Oh, yeah, I'm in. Oh, yeah, yeah, I live with my boyfriend. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in immorality, but Jesus forgives sin. And there's no grief, there's no care, and there's no difference. And Peter writes in his second epistle, he said, make sure your election in Christ. If there's no difference, there's one of two things. Either you have strayed far enough, you become short-sighted, or you are not saved. Don't try to make Jesus into something that makes you comfortable, that he's just waiting around, and he's not a judge. Whenever you want to get right, you can put your pornography away, and he'll fix it. Or you're one of those lazy Christians that thinks, well, when God wants to take it away, I'll be willing The opportunity for dealing with your sin is given an example when Saul brought home the wicked king instead of killing him like God said. And Samuel said, Saul, didn't God send you on a mission? Oh, yes, I did. I went on a mission. He said, really? Because the command of the mission was to kill everything. Don't leave anything. Destroy the cattle. Oh, well, I went on a mission, and I just kept the best of everything. What did Samuel say? By the word of the Lord, he said, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to God is better than the fat of rams. And that wicked king, it says, he came mincingly. He said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Can't we just all get along now? And Samuel grabbed Saul's sword, and he hewed that king to pieces, it says, before the Lord. He finished the job. That's how we personally need to deal with our sin. That we say, God, convict me of my sin. Grant me repentance. Help me to hate not my brother's sin, but my sin. Hack it to pieces before you, Lord, that I can walk in your ways, that you can restore me. But America has a new morality. They have a new Jesus, and he's just kind of comfortable with everything. As long as you can make a rock song to go with it, mm, God's okay with it. Mm -hmm. Stop your false worship. And then verses 16 through 20, seek repentance. Seek repentance. 
See, religion goes on even when there's rebellion. Oh, yeah, I go to church. I go to church. God says, stop. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the worthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's the same thing that Carl preached two weeks ago, isn't it? From Micah. To love mercy and justice and walk humbly with our God. Pretty simple. When when Peter preached in Acts, he said... Wicked men with cruel hands by the sovereignty of God crucified Jesus. He laid it out for them. He accused them of their sin. And there was a great revival that day. There was a great repentance in Israel. And what did they say? What shall we do? We're in trouble. Isaiah is hoping as he preaches the word of the Lord, somebody's going to say, what shall we do? And he gives God's invitation. This is the great invitation of Scripture. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As salvation was the same in the Old Testament as it is today. It's not just a decision It's not just saying, oh, I want Jesus to come into my heart, now I can live like the devil because I got fire insurance. Mm -mm. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. What is that saying? That's saying, Lord, I am a sinner. I am unworthy. And I cling to the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ, which is payment for me, denying yourself. Then he says what? Take up your cross and follow me. Where was Jesus going to the place of sacrifice? No matter what it costs. I will follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Follow me. Remember just a few weeks ago, we laid, Jesus laid out before Peter what it was going to cost him. And Peter said, hey, Lord, hmm, what about John? And the Lord said, Peter, you follow me. That's our opportunity. That's the Christian life, following Jesus. It's not just saying a prayer and, oh, you're in. God can't get you now because you said the prayer. That is just silliness. It's foolishness. Are you following Christ? Come now, let us reason together. There's that opportunity God calls. He said, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? With sin. With sin. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest. He says here, though your sin are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. And I think the most beautiful picture in the word of God is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 in the King James Version. The king of everything, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, stooped and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Is that awesome or what? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Verse 21 through the end of the chapter is the challenge and the promise to Israel. We have no promise like this. We don't see the United States in prophecy. I guess you can strain and maybe see her a little bit and possibly in uh, Ezekiel 39. 
where it says the young lions in the King James, the young lions ask Rush as he's coming down to destroy Israel. Hey, what are you guys doing? Huh? We don't do anything. We don't stop them. Maybe that's the United States. I don't know that it is. And yet God, in his detail, shows all these kingdoms throughout Daniel before they took place. What happened in the United States? I don't know. He says to Israel, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. Think about this. This is us. She who is full of justice, righteousness, once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the organ or orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your drosses, will lie and remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you've desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you've chosen. For you will be an oak whose leaf fades, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there shall be none to quench them. The Bible says in Psalm 139, the wicked will be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. That's who we are today, folks. We as believers need to take responsibility and be in prayer. That we might be found faithful in our time, in our place. A couple options. The United States of America has no significant place in prophecy. Been doing a lot of reading with this year. Some say she's the daughter of Babylon, of Psalm 137, and, and Isaiah 47, and Jeremiah 50 and 51. And the daughter of Babylon is destroyed because, and the, their, the, those commentators say, because she was a righteous, righteous uh, nation and she turned away from God, and so God destroyed her. And they see the destruction of the twin towers as kind of a precursor, like Isaiah 9 was to the northern kingdom, and they didn't listen, so God took them away. That's one option. Mark Hitchcock, he's a Dallas um, grad. He is a, a pastor in Oklahoma. I love his stuff. It's just biblical. It appears that in God's timetable, America remains a key player until the rapture occurs. It's after the rapture that the group of ten come on the scene in Europe along with the Antichrist and negotiate the peace treaty that temporarily suspends the Middle East crisis. Up until that point, it seems that America will continue to be Israel's key ally and defender. If that's true, if America must remain strong up to that time of the rapture but afterwards be replaced by Europe as a center of power and peace negotiations, then what does that tell us? He says, I believe the rapture will bring America to his knees because the Christians will be gone. There'll be no more moral compass. There'll be no one to slow down, no salt and light left, which leads us to ponder the opportunity that we have for a great revival and a great harvest yet. One of my godly friends 
said to me, Pastor, we need to be building a bigger building because as you see culture being turned upside down, people are asking questions. We see the opportunity for harvest growing. Jesus said this, when you see the incoming, you see these things begin to come to pass. He didn't say run and hide. He said, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. We sing the song, and I love the song. At the last verse, the Lord provided. It says, I hope to die shouting. The Lord will provide. In times like these, the old gospel song says we need a savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. We don't know what's coming. We only have the opportunity to be faithful today. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will be known fully, just as I have been fully known. Pray that God would grant repentance personally and for our nation. We need to be praying as the psalmist in 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Be open before the Lord. Say, Lord, is there something in me that's holding back revival? There's something in me that you need to purge. And then serve the Lord with all your heart. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does that great teaching on the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And he said, listen, in order for there to be new life in a seed, the seed first has to fall into the ground, and it dies, and then it brings forth a new life. And he said, whether you die in the Lord or you get to be involved in the rapture, it says we will all be changed. First John chapter 3 says everybody has this hope in him that you're going to be like Jesus one day, purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. And after he goes through the whole deal, he said, listen, you have nothing to be afraid of because the sting has been pulled out of death. The victory has been pulled out of the grave. He says, therefore, because God has already been there, Jesus has already been there, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is our time and our place to be found faithful today. Hebrews 12 1 and 2 says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, what's the witnesses? In chapter 11, those that suffered faithfully, those that were destitute, forsaken by all, hungry, naked. It says, men of whom the world is not worthy, but God said they were worthy. Those witnesses to faithfulness, let us also... Lay aside every encumbrance, anything that holds you back, not just sin, but things that just entangle you, and sin, which so easily entangles you, and run with endurance the the race that is set before you, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faithful living, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for you and me despising the shame, and now is set down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him 
who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint and quit. Listen, you have the Holy Spirit in you, believer. And there's no telling what you can accomplish for the Lord in times like these if you're just willing, available, and desire that faithfulness. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, how powerful it is, how sharp it is. It cuts us. Lord, cut away. That's what entangles the sin, those attitudes that slow us down. And Lord, I pray like the early church did, give us boldness that we might speak the truth in love without fear because we love you. And Lord, we want to hear. We stand before you one day. Well done. You were faithful in your time and place. Oh, Lord, call us to that as a church. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.